This is Dr. Todd Schlesinger for Dialogues in Dermatology, and today we're going to be interviewing Dr. Doug Grossman, Professor of Dermatology at the University of Utah in Salt Lake City, where he directs the Early Melanoma Detection Program. Welcome, Dr. Grossman. Uh, hi, Todd. Great to be with you today. Today we're going to be speaking about current controversies in early-stage melanoma, and Dr. Grossman, as a recognized expert, in melanoma, there are a number of controversies that I think of day to day in my clinic that uh, I have lots and lots of questions for. So let's just start up and talk about melanoma. So my first kind of question is, we know that melanoma is important. So that question goes by the wayside. We know that there seems to be more melanoma being diagnosed. So is there an epidemic of melanoma going on right now? Well, I think if you look at the numbers, you would say that there is. I mean, if um, one looks at the um, uh, uh, projected uh, uh, risk of of developing melanoma uh, in the population uh, over the past few decades, it's continued to increase. And if you extrapolate the curve, you might think at some point everyone in the population will be getting melanoma, uh, which we don't think uh, is the case. Um, the real question, I think, is whether clearly the diagnoses are increasing, and the real question is whether uh, they're real or not. Um, in the article, we talk about a number of factors that um, may account for the increase in melanoma diagnoses, and we can discuss that a little bit further. Sure. Uh, that makes sense. So, you know, from a risk standpoint, you know, many dermatologists would consider ultraviolet exposure, the different things to be risk factors. Is there a shift in the risk factor profile that's happening or is maybe something else going on why we're seeing so many cases? Well, as I said, I think there are a number of factors. Um, you mentioned uh, ultraviolet exposure. Clearly, that's the major environmental risk factor. And um, there's some evidence to suggest that over the past number of decades that um, sun exposure uh, has been increasing. Um, uh, I have a sense that uh, tanning bed use uh, is quite prevalent, uh, particularly in women. Um, and so uh, uh, that may account for um, uh, more UV exposure. Um, other factors as well um, uh, that, that could explain that uh, increase uh, in incidence. Uh, another one that uh, comes to mind is the aging population. Uh, we know melanoma incidence increases with age, and as the population gets older, um, that you would expect increased diagnoses uh, for that reason as well. That makes a lot of sense. So aging population, so I think we should talk a little bit about screening and then possibly one question I think that's very interesting is the profile of the melanoma lesion being diagnosed. Uh, has that changed mm-hmm. over time? And you know, just screening really improved the outcome in melanoma. Right. number of separate issues there. Uh, clearly, there's been increased screening. Um, uh, the AED campaign began in the mid-1980s, and we had increasing numbers of people uh, being screened. And the more you look for something, the more you're going to find it, uh, obviously. So that's uh, uh, definitely one factor. Um, another uh, related issue is whether uh, the... Um, diagnoses that are, that are being made are, are in fact, um, um, the same over time. Um, there's this idea of, of diagnostic shift that uh, over time, uh, our dermatopathologists 
um, calling the, the same lesions uh, melanoma? Are they uh, is there more of a tendency um, in more recent decades to call lesions melanoma that might have not have been called uh, melanoma previously? Um, and to the extent that that may be uh, going on, that could also explain increased diagnoses. You had mentioned the lesion profile. And in fact, uh, if you do look at that, um, there's some um, uh, work that has shown that um, the proportion of melanomas that are early stage or thin uh, uh, is increasing faster than the rate of thick melanomas, um, which one would expect if some component of this was due to screening and early diagnosis. Uh, however, the uh, number of thick melanomas is increasing also. So the increased diagnosis is not simply a result of the uh, earlier detection, although that may be a contributing factor. So is screening still recommended the way we currently perceive it? Well, the, uh, the U.S. Uh, Preventive Task Force has repeatedly not endorsed uh, routine skin screening, uh, the general population, um, with a, a number of, of, of reasons saying that it, it's not, um, uh, it's still an open question of whether it would improve survival or not. And then they also question the, the, the costs and risks benefit, um, of that. Um, but I think most of us would agree, most dermatologists would agree that patients who are at increased risk for melanoma, um, it does make sense to screen those people. Uh, in our, our clinic, we try to recruit patients that have multiple melanoma risk factors, uh, personal or family history, numerous or atypical nevi, and uh, those patients um, have a higher risk of melanoma, and so it, it, it does make sense, at least to me, to be screening those people. Um, but uh, in terms of the general population, uh, you know, it's an open question. And our Academy of Dermatology doesn't quite have a specific recommendation on skin cancer screening, or does it? Um, you know, I, I, I'm not sure. I think at one point, at one point, uh, they were saying that everyone over age 50 should get a baseline skin examination. I'm not sure if that um, is still holding to that. Um, I think actually, I'm not even thinking about it. Um, uh, I don't think the AED does have specific recommendations on skin screening. But I thought at one point, um, somewhere I thought I'd read that um, over age 50 deserves a baseline exam, although it's clear there aren't really enough dermatologists in the country to do that, you know, for the whole population. So then the question is who, you know, who should do the screening? Should it just be dermatologists or physician extenders or trained primary care physicians? Um, you know, another aspect of this controversy. So... Dr. Grossman, what is the role of digital dermoscopy? I think it depends on the context. So uh, there's some studies that have shown that um, uh, experienced users, uh, dermoscopy it definitely makes a difference and improves their diagnostic ability, whereas inexperienced uh, users, it may actually uh, reduce their diagnostic uh, accuracy. Um, I think of dermoscopy as just one of, of multiple tools that we have. And um, uh, I'm a big proponent of total body photography. Um, in my experience, the 
being able to ascertain whether a lesion is new or changing over a period of time um, uh, is uh, very helpful and allows you really to avoid biopsying lesions that may have a clinically atypical appearance, but you can tell are not changing, uh, but at the same time identify uh, new lesions that, um, for instance, in an older patient that um, shouldn't be presenting, but you would know that from, from review of photos. Um, so my practice dramatically play, plays a role. Uh, I use it along with uh, photography and, and other, other factors. It sounds like it's very. It sounds like it's a very accurate way to follow melanomas over time, or follow atypical lesions over time, to at least increase the sensitivity and specificity of uh, the diagnosis of melanoma. Sure, so, and, I, and I, I think there's there's also a role for um, uh, dermoscopic monitoring, or so-called digital dermoscopic monitoring, where one would identify particular lesions that. Um, might be a little suspicious that um, you would capture a dermoscopic photo and then uh, reevaluate uh, over time and look for dermoscopic changes. Uh, the pitfall of that uh, as a sole strategy is that, of course, most melanomas arise de novo and not from nevi. And so an approach focused only on the nevi is going to miss uh, the majority uh, of melanomas that might be presenting de novo. So we've talked a lot about screening and uh, the diagnosis of melanoma, the incidence, and how that may be changing. But now, once we biopsied a lesion and have discovered melanoma, and say, for example, we discover regression, how should that be interpreted in primary melanoma? The issue of regression has been a confusing one uh, for a number of reasons. Um, First, if one looks at the literature, there are conflicting studies on uh, the prognostic importance of regression. Some studies showing um, that uh, it may be a favorable prognostic sign and others showing it, it, it may not be. Uh, and this is, the confusion is, is compounded by the fact that there's not a consistent uh, method for reporting regression. Um, some dermatopathologists will simply indicate if it's present or not, or some will uh, try to estimate the percent of the lesion, uh, which uh, um, involves regression. And so it's very difficult if one's going to do a retrospective study or multi-center study to group a bunch of lesions together that may have been, in which the regression has been categorized differently. And so that's been a, been a major problem. And the next topic that's related to that would be sentinel lymph node biopsies. Again, I think it's another controversial topic in my clinic. Mm -hmm. We try to follow the guidelines that have been put forth by the various oncological organizations and our own organizations. What's some of the updated thinking with, with respect to the utility of the sentinel lymph node biopsy? Well, just tying from the, the previous uh, question with, with regression, that's never really been um, an indication for sentinel lymph node biopsy, although some have argued that if regression is present in a lesion, that you cannot um, accurately assess the maximal depth of the lesion, which is a major criteria for determining the, uh, whether one would do a sentinel lift node biopsy or not. And therefore, uh, in the presence of regression, some have advocated doing that procedure. Um, but um, 
the guidelines, including the, the newest uh, AGACC guidelines that uh, came out uh, last year, uh, still do not um, endorse regression as an indication for sentinel lymph node biopsy. Um, the idea is over time, uh, with the guidelines, they, they've tried to uh, restrict the indication so that you're doing the, the sentinel lymph node biopsy uh, on a um, a group of patients where you've got a, um, uh, a reasonable chance of detecting a, a positive result. In other words, if the risk of having a positive sentinel lymph node is very low, then the expense and potential uh, morbidity of the procedure doesn't justify it. And so what we've seen over time is a narrowing of the criteria so that the patients that meet those indications, we're expecting to have a higher percentage of patients uh, have a positive result so that uh, it increases the utility of the test. That makes perfect sense. You want to, you want to order a test that's going to have utility and you want to be able to interpret, the, be able to use those results. So shifting over, so speaking about senolipto biopsies, but yet that's typically based on depth and maybe a few other factors. So what if you don't know the depth? For example, we do a lot of shape biopsies in dermatology. What if you transect the melanoma and you don't know what the deep margin is? You know, how, it, right. Is there some new thinking about an, how that's handled? Yeah, and this is an issue that, that comes up frequently, um, particularly if, if biopsies are done by someone, uh, for instance, uh, someone who's not a dermatologist, who's not or doesn't have experience with pigmented lesions, um, and um, they, they, they perform a, a shave biopsy too superficially, and such that there are tumor cells going to the base of the specimen. So then you don't really know how deep the lesion is. Um, and so um, uh, one approach is to simply say, well, we don't know what the depth is, and so assume the worst. Um, but the fact is, one, there, there are a couple of ways to approach this that um, make a little bit more sense than just assuming that, that the lesion goes very deep uh, and going right to a um, very wide local excision, sentinel lymph node biopsy. Um, and so the uh, two things that one can consider is one is whether the uh, extent of the transection is focal or broad. So that um, if one looks at the lesion uh, histologically, only uh, one small uh, part of the lesion uh, is transected. Uh, that's for, uh, maybe a different clinical scenario than than if the entire deep margin uh, is involved, so uh, as would be in, in the case of broad transection. And so if there's focal transection, um, one could um, uh, conclude that that might be the extent uh, of the invasion, whereas if the transection is broad involving the entire deep margin, that it's more likely that there's a lot more tumor uh, that was left behind. That makes perfect sense. And related. So I would just say that, so again, so what one can do is if, for instance, if you have a, a lesion that um, is transected uh, and the maximal depth is below 8 millimeters, because if it's greater than 8, then, I'm sorry, the 0.8 millimeters, if it's greater than 0.8 millimeters, then you know you're going to be, that's an indication for some lymph node biopsy. But let's say it's less than 0.8 millimeters and the lesion's not ulcerated, um, one could consider doing a, a repeat biopsy. Uh, and I've done this uh, frequently, so that one can go back and essentially re-biopsy the previously biopsied site to assess whether there's any residual tumor there. 
And if there's no residual tumor, then I think that um, there are several studies that suggest that in that scenario, you could conclude that the initial depth from the original biopsy was probably accurate. Whereas if in the, resi- in the repeat biopsy, if there's significant residual tumor, then I think that, that suggests that, that it's actually much deeper than initial biopsy suggested. Uh, and then at that point, you could do the larger excision and the lymph node biopsy. And it's not uncommon for us to detect a different depth on wide local excision versus the initial biopsy, or is that less common in your opinion? Well, it depends how the biopsy is done and, and on, on the nature of the lesion. Um, certainly, if a partial biopsy is done in which only part of the pigmented lesion is sampled, then um, uh, it would not be surprising at all to find um, uh, increased depth um, on the excision. Um, but the fact is, uh, the, the closer you look within a specimen, the more likely you are to find some, some differences, potentially an increase in depth. And so a number of studies have looked at uh, how does the diagnosis or assessment of depth change um, if, uh, compared to just the initial biopsy versus, just, let's say, the, the block is sectioned all the way through and a much more uh, rigorous histologic examination is undertaken, then it is more likely that uh, the depth will increase. Uh, however, though, it's not really clear that um, the management uh, for most of those lesions would, would change. Similarly, at melanoma in situ, um, there, there's some work showing that uh, some fraction of lesions, if they're sectioned more extensively, might show a focus of invasion. And that could change the management in terms of the margins for re-excision. But again, it would only likely be in a small number of cases. So speaking of that clinical decision-making that has to be done regarding sentinel lymph node biopsy, uh, type of biopsy, we now also introduced gene expression profiling. That has become quite popular uh, nowadays, I, I hear it regularly at meetings and uh, talked about in the office. So what's the role of the gene expression profile in, in, in your opinion, and does it change the utilization of the sentinel lymph node biopsy? Well, the, this is a very uh, controversial uh, area. Um, the recent NCCM guidelines uh, advise that while there's great potential for molecular profiling of the lesion, that um, at this time, they don't recommend it. Um, they feel that not enough lesions have been tested and we don't have enough uh, prospective data to really determine whether a molecular profile uh, of the lesion uh, would add anything beyond our current um, staging criteria uh, to, to improve them. Um, and I, if I can, I'll just tell you a, a quick story. Um, uh, I gave a talk uh, at the summer AED this past summer in which um, this was one of the issues that I talked about. And at, at the beginning, at the outset, I asked how many people uh, have ordered a molecular profiling test uh, after diagnosing a melanoma. And about a third of the audience raised their hands. And then later in the talk, I introduced specific clinical scenarios, such, for example, if let's say you have what by conventional staging parameters would be a low-risk lesion, 
but the molecular profile suggested it was high risk of metastasis. Would you would you do something different? Um, would you alter your treatment or surveillance plans? And then conversely, what if you had a more aggressive high risk lesion, but then the molecular profile came back as a low risk? Would you then how would that change? And and basically, no one voted. Uh, people were, were were unwilling to stick their neck out uh, as to how this would change their management, even though uh, a number of people admitted that they were ordering a test. So I think this is still a, an area that we're trying to figure out, um, and uh, it'll be interesting to uh, uh, in the next uh, coming years uh, to see really how these molecular profiling tests uh, are going to play out. Uh, the one thing I would just say is that uh, I think it's it's a mistake to consider the molecular profile test as a substitute for the sentinel lymph node biopsy because these uh, things are really designed to test uh, different things. The sentinel lymph node biopsy is simply asking, has the tumor spread to the regional uh, lymph node uh, basin? And not only is that a strong predictor of survival, but also a predictor of local recurrence and the consequences of that. Whereas the molecular profiling test is simply... Uh, uh, is the patient at high risk of developing distant metastasis in the future. Um, and so that's, they're, they're really sort of looking at a little bit different things. And distant metastases may have a different mechanism than regional lymph node Well, that, 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 that's exactly that right. And so we, we know that a lot of patients who have a negative sentinel lymph node biopsy ultimately do develop metastatic disease. And so obviously there's the, the hematogenous route as well as the lymphatic route for melanoma spread. Um, but I think the molecular profiling is exciting and it really gets to this idea that maybe, um, you know, to think about melanoma as a, the traditional sense is a, a lesion starts uh, is a small lesion and then if undetected, it grows and then develops these um, uh, other factors that allow it to metastasize. So as the lesion grows and acquires more depth, the risk of metastasis, metastasis increases. But the, 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 the paradigm with the molecular profiling is that from the get-go, a lesion either has high risk of metastasis or it doesn't. And uh, it's possible, it's exciting that if, if one could really uh, use this test to then... Um, predict and, and guide management and maybe avoid um, uh, more procedures or intense monitoring in patients who might not need it or conversely to do more in patients that, that might need it, but you might not think they do based on the histologic uh, parameters. But I think it's just too early at this point to say exactly you know, how, how this test should be used. There are so many controversies uh, in melanoma uh, going on. So it's very, very interesting. So let's sort of come full circle and wrap this up a little bit as we're nearing the end of our time together. My kind of last question is, so it's going to be more of a paradigm question. How and how often should we screen our patients with early stage melanoma? And is there anything else we should or should not be doing for them to keep them as safe as possible? Well, it's a great question. This is something that patients always ask us. We um, really want to strike that balance of doing um, uh, the appropriate amount of surveillance, uh, but to not be so aggressive that we're subjecting patients to um, costly imaging and uh, potentially uh, adverse uh, consequences of that. Um, 
So for advanced melanoma, very high-risk melanoma, there are clear uh, guidelines for surveillance uh, with respect to imaging as outlined uh, by the NCCN. But for the early stage, uh, there are really no specific um, indications. And so um, I think you really have to look at this. Uh, at one point, uh, early in my training, we used to do chest x-rays for every patient that had stage one disease, thinking that, well, just let's see if everything is, is okay. And then that could establish a baseline. And then um, it could be then repeated down the road if there's symptoms and, and you'd have that to refer to. But um, studies have really shown there's no indication for that. Um, uh, routine imaging, uh, chest X-ray, or even um, ultrasound CT scans of patients with very early stage disease doesn't appear to predict survival uh, or affect survival. And so there might be um, a very rare patient that uh, might have low-risk disease and that ultimately could metastasize, and you might detect that but at what cost and how many patients would you have to screen with early stage disease to pick up that one patient that is going to develop the metastatic disease? Um, I think sort of the gray area is the patients with stage two disease, um, particularly stage two B and two C. Uh, uh, if you know, some of those patients have actually a higher risk of death from melanoma than patients with stage three disease. And so I think in that area, um, one might consider, uh, along with other factors and uh, talking with the patient, whether you might want to do some routine imaging, such as ultrasound uh, in the regional area, for a short period of time for the first couple of years. But um, there's really no indication for doing long-term imaging beyond, uh, let's say, five years after diagnosis. Um, and even in the first uh, early years after diagnosis, uh, unless it's uh, particularly for stage one or stage 2A patients, uh, really no data to suggest that that's going to improve survival uh, or be beneficial. Uh, we do think surveillance with skin examinations is important because we know these patients are at increased risk for getting a second or a third melanoma. And so uh, that does make sense. Uh, I usually see these patients back um, every six months, um, at least for the first um, a few years, and then after five years, if there's no recurrence uh, or, or new melanoma, then uh, on an annual basis. Things to think about. So as we summarize, do you have any last thoughts to leave uh, with the listeners of this podcast? Anything that we can take away, key points? Well, I, I just think we, we, we've talked about a number of issues in early stage melanoma, and, and the reason that these are controversial is because there really aren't, isn't clear evidence uh, uh, to guide us uh, with respect to a number of these controversies, um, and the prospective clinical trials are lacking. Um, some of these things we're never going to settle because the trials are never going to be done, although in some of these cases, I think with molecular profiling and some of these other issues, um, uh, I think with more data, it'll, it'll, it'll become more clear uh, uh, what the right answer will be. Thank you, Dr. Grossman. It's been a very engaging uh, discussion together, and I look forward to our next one. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thank you, Todd.